Prayer is a big mystery to me. Maybe that's not something you want to hear your pastor say. But let let me put it to you this way. Uh, If God is really God, if he's really omniscient, omnibenevolent, right, totally good, knows everything, all-wise, and all-powerful, does he really need me giving him advice? Right? You ever think about that when you pray? Like you are speaking to the God who knows everything, and we are speaking in our ignorance. You are speaking to the God who only wants to do good all of the time and has the ability to do it. And, well, we're not quite like that yet. Maybe someday. And, and we have the audacity to come to God in prayer and say, Hey, God, I don't know if you noticed. Or, Hey, God, uh, are you sure you're not doing it wrong over here? Hey, God, I'm pretty mad at the moment because uh, my life is not the way it should be. Or, or that person's life is not the way it should be. Is anyone else a little more concerned about going to pray later today or the prayers we've already offered today? In our wisdom, limited wisdom, in our limited goodness, I'm pretty concerned. (laughs) Honestly, sometimes I go to pray and I, 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 I go like this. This is what, I don't know, probably a third of my prayers are like, dear Jesus. What am I going to tell him? He knows what I'm ha- what's happening in my life. He knows better than I do what I need and what my friends and family need and what the world needs. And sometimes I find that to be kind of paralyzing in my prayer life. And yet, Scripture is clear that we are to be people who pray. If If it wasn't, if we weren't to be people who'd pray, we'd have to lose at least the book of Psalms, the entire thing, the longest book in the Bible, because it's full of prayers. If we uh, weren't supposed to pray, if God didn't want us to pray, we'd have to lose a whole bunch of the book of Revelation, because the prayers of the saints are mentioned prominently all throughout, and especially in our passage today. Did you get that? Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. The censer is a a tool in worship that they would have filled with incense, and maybe it was sort of a basket on a pole, right? Or maybe if you've been to a a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox church, you've seen them swinging, swinging something, a basket of incense. That's the idea that we have here. This angel with a golden censer, and he comes to stand at the altar of, most likely the altar of incense, And he was given all sorts of incense to offer, but he's not given anything to light it with. Did you notice that? And I think it's because one commentator says here that, because it says he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people. And one commentator said, it's like the prayers of God's people are the charcoal on which the incense is lit. What do you know about incense? Well, I don't know if you know very much about incense. I know next to nothing about incense except that it's smelly, and it's supposed to be smelly in a good, positive sort of way. That's why you do it in the throne room of God. That's why you do it in the church, because it's a pleasing scent. How does that pleasing scent get to God on the prayers of the saints? Did you know that's how God considers your prayers and my prayers? as the spark that lights the fragrant incense that is pleasing to him. 
So we have two things here. We have, on the one hand, we really are struggling with, what is prayer all about? How can we pray to a God who already knows before we open our mouths and has purposed better things than we can? And then we have, on the other hand, God saying, oh, your prayers are to me like incense. They bring this wonderful, worshipful, warm scent that I love to fill my temple and my throne room with. I think if we explore this passage in a little bit more detail, we'll find out something about how we are supposed to pray, about God's invitation to us to pray, and what God does with our prayers. Let's start with that first one. How are we supposed to pray? See, this, this passage, you know, it occurs in the context of the book of Revelation. And if you go back to chapter 6, to the opening of the fifth seal, do you remember this? It was uh, the saints. He opened the fifth seal, chapter 6, verse 9. And I saw under the altar the souls of those, this is probably the same altar, by the way, who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They're praying. This is their prayer. And it sounds like a little more revengey than we're probably super comfortable praying, especially in 21st century America. But they are praying. And this is the context in which I think we need to understand the prayers that are offered up to God in chapter 8. This world is broken. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. God, we're your people. We're the ones who are telling the truth, and yet no one appreciates that we tell the truth. Most people respond negatively to it. Negatively, even to the point of, of killing us, God. You know, this still happens today. We are largely sheltered from persecution in 21st century America, and that continues to be true. It's not that I don't read the news. It's not that I don't see the signs. But folks, the cost of being a Christian in our country is so very low. But it's not the same around the world. There are still followers of Jesus Christ who are crucified in Africa. There are still followers of Jesus Christ who are jailed for their beliefs in China, many other places. Still followers of Jesus Christ who may be subject to revenge killings in much of the Muslim world. And there's still Christians praying these prayers. How long, God? How long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? See, these aren't bad prayers. These aren't wrong prayers. These are people telling God the way it is. This is how it is. This is how it works. And we're doing something similar when we cry out to God, not just about our own ill treatment, but saying, God, look at how broken this world is. Look at the result of hurricanes and earthquakes. Look at the result of, of broken relationships and broken families. Look at these children growing up without parents. Look at everything that's gone so terribly wrong. And these prayers rise like incense before God. We know, we, care. we know that he cares about them. We see, first of all, different places in Scripture. You go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Remember the people of Israel, they're slaves in Egypt. 
And they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then after 400 years, God calls Moses and he says, I have heard the groaning of my people and I'm about to do something about it. And for you and me, since we don't live for 400 years, we might be saying, okay, that's great for that generation, God, but what about the like 20 generations before that one? To which we'll find an answer a little bit later here. But God heard, and he acted, and he he waited until the right time. And exactly why that's the right time, some of those reasons are inscrutable for us. We can't know them. If that makes sense, are we God ourselves? Do you have the understanding of the God who created the universe? Do you expect that every question we have has a simple answer that we will take in quickly and easily and understand? Or do you anticipate that even in heaven, even when we are in God's very presence, even when he can explain to us face to face that there may still be things that are beyond us and we will never understand and know and our only available response will be either to turn away and say, I want nothing to do with you, God, or to say, you are God and I worship you. And let me tell you, we need a God like that. This is one of the great things about Trinity Sunday, as a matter of fact. Trinity Sunday, we believe that God is three persons, but one God. Does anyone know anyone else who is three persons and one at the same time? No, I I hope your answer is no. (laughs) No, he is a different sort of thing, isn't he? Did you know that the word holy, which we apply to God, God is holy. You know that word holy means maybe primarily not that he is morally pure, although it does encompass that, but it means he is set apart. He is different. He is not human. And what the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us of is that God is too big for our tiny little minds to fully understand. We can know him. And we can continue to learn about him, but we will never know all of him. And that's what it means that he is God. That's a good thing. If there is a God that we can know all of that God, he's not really God at the end of the day, is he? He's just a very powerful human being. Why do you think uh, superhero movies are so popular? And I confess I love superhero movies. I love Iron Man. I love Superman. Superman's the greatest superhero of all, right? Why do you... Why do you, somebody just, I think, disagreed, but that's, oh, okay, we got another Superman fan, that's good stuff, but, but think about why we like these people so much. It's because they can go around righting the wrongs. They have this incredible power to make things right in a good, a good comic book story. I don't know if that's a contradiction in terms or not, but we'll run with it for a moment here. A good comic book story clearly draws a line between good and evil. And the good guy has all the power to get rid of the evil guy and make things right again. And yet, in our age, what have we found? Like, if if you watch the the Marvel movies, you have Iron Man, Tony Stark, right? And, And he's super smart, and he makes a super suit, and he can do superhuman sorts of things, but nothing ever really gets better. Because I think in this era we've come to realize that it's not enough just to be superhuman. We have to be something different entirely. What a good thing it is that God is three in one. And we say, yeah, I get some of that, but a lot of it I don't understand and I'll never get. Because that's part of what we recognize. He is big enough 
to be our God. He is more than we are. And he welcomes our prayers, as we said. And he acts on our prayers, as we said. He redeems the people of Israel out of Egypt. But then there's something else. You read this opening verse to chapter 8. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And if you're like me, when you heard that, you probably just passed right on by until somebody made you stop and think about it. Okay, so it was quiet, big deal. But what is, why is there silence in it? Well, remember what the sixth, the sixth seal is the final judgment on all of the world and on all of humanity. And then there's still a seal left. And you're like, oh no, what could this one contain? We've already seen something so terrible. And he opens up the seventh seal and it says there is silence in heaven for half an hour. And I think the silence signifies a couple of different things for us. The first, notice that it's not silence on earth, although earth may be silent. It's just not speaking to that. But it's silence in heaven. And do you remember all the speaking that we heard in heaven? It was holy, holy, holy. It was praise God. It was the lamb is worthy. It was just worship. All the speaking in heaven was worship. But it stopped. And there was silence for half an hour. And there is an ancient Jewish tradition that we can trace all the way back to this time. As a matter of fact, I have this written down if I can find my notes for this morning. I cannot. That's a boomer. Uh, but there is an ancient Jewish tradition that periodically heaven would get quiet just so God could hear the prayers of his saints. The seventh seal is God's stopping listening, and making sure he has heard it all. And then once he has done this, we're going to skip verse 2 because verse 2 is a transition to what we'll do next week. Once he had done this, the angel with the golden censer comes with the incense to offer, with the prayers of all God's people. And all of that in the silence rises up to God who longs to hear our prayers for reasons we don't fully understand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. And remember where the martyred saints had been in the fifth seal? They were under the altar where the blood had dripped down upon them and made them holy and pure. And the altar is, in a sense, the place of their sacrifice because of their faithfulness to God. And the angel takes the censer and he fills it with fire from that sacrifice and he throws it onto the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And this is where we end the first look at God's final judgment on the world. We actually see this from at least three different perspectives in, in the seal judgments that we've just finished. Then in the trumpet judgments, which are referred to here in verse 2. And then finally in the bowls of God's wrath, the great judgments through which God's wrath is finally satisfied. Wrath against sin and evil. And what happens here? Somehow those prayers that God's people have been praying all along, God see the brokenness, God see the injustice, God see all that's gone wrong with our world, somehow they become the vehicle through which God's judgment is delivered. 
and evil is defeated. Did you know your prayers have that power? And it's not because of who we are, but it's because of who God is. It's because of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Did you know your prayers have power? But here, we're going to, I think, let this be our last point this morning, unless I get really excited about something else. But here's, I think, part of why this is significant. In the fifth seal, again in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, all the saints, they're praying, God, how long? And then in verse 11, it says this, Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. See, I think when we look back at the people of Israel groaning in Egypt, right, for 400 years, praying, God, rescue us, redeem us as slaves, and God waits the 400 years. We say, why did he wait? What about all the people that came before? And maybe there's a hint of it right here. Wait a little longer until the full number of your fellow servants, your brothers and sisters, have lived faithfully so that all of the judgment that's stored up for the evil that's committed can finally be poured out. Until we have rooted out every last evil deed that people will commit. Until we have fully and finally demonstrated the need for this to happen. Uh, the early church used to love to pray Maranatha, which in Aramaic means something like, Lord Jesus, come. And I think that a lot of us are hesitant to pray that way. And I'll count myself among those folks. And it's for a number of reasons. One of which is we're still a little afraid to meet Jesus someday. Some of us are. Some of you out there are super holy. God bless you. I'd love to learn from you. But I'm still a little afraid sometimes because I think, oh, you know, I just did that thing the other day and I really would like Jesus to come back when I've got some more distance from my sin and I can be like, look how good I am. And Jesus will be like, oh, that's never the point. The point was how good I was for you. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think that we have some fear as well because we look at our friends and our family, don't we? We say, not all of the people that I love and care about have, have come to put their faith in Jesus yet. And, and if Jesus comes now, they won't get that chance. So Jesus, would you wait just a little bit longer? I think that for some of us as well, we're not really convinced that God is just enough to deliver these judgments. We say, God, like I'd really rather not think of you coming back because that's when all this terrible stuff is going to happen and I'm not sure I'm okay with that. And let me tell you, if you're thinking any one of those things this morning, two things. First, there is a better way to think, which is to trust God. But secondly, you're okay here. You can belong here. You can still follow Jesus even if you haven't settled every question and every issue in your mind. As a matter of fact, I'd argue that the very best Christians in the world are the ones who have some questions still. Because our God is infinite. We will never run out of questions for him. 
We will never perfectly understand who he is. That's part of why eternity works, folks, because we will have an eternal adventure to undertake, which is getting to know God better and better forever and ever. We'll never be done. And sometimes when we don't have any questions, it's because really we're keeping God just limited to this place in my life over here without opening the whole thing up and saying you are welcome in all of my life. See, when God is welcome in all of our lives, that's when we have these questions. That's when, that's when we say with the saints under the altar, how long, O Lord? That's when we say, I don't understand, God, how some of these things are sin and some of these things are not sin. I don't, it seems like the society or culture is right on these points, and, it, and I'm not. If we don't have any questions, it's usually because we're just not asking questions. We're happy with where we are, and we're not going any deeper. Let me tell you, if you're a little afraid of Jesus coming back, you're okay. But... I want to tell you this. When the saints under the altar offered up that prayer, said, God, how long? You need to do this now. What did God say? He said, my timing is not your timing. I'm still about something here. And until I have wrung every last drop of good out of the way the world is today, I'm not going to be done. When we pray, God, come into my life. God, come back and make this world right. When we pray anything at all, we don't have to be afraid of the timing of God's answer. It'll come at just the right moment, at just the right time. We have seen a number of people that we care about very deeply in this place who are sick and uh, sometimes critically ill. We've seen some people we care about very deeply die in the last several months. Uh, I told you about my friend Jonathan, pastor in Illinois, who had brain cancer. Doctors said, you know, four to seven years is the best you could look for. He went back and he was in remission, and the doctors said it's a miracle, essentially. That was probably more Christian language than they used. But... And then we look at some of the people in our context, who are sick and maybe won't be healed. We say, why? Well, let me tell you, first of all, and I'm sorry if this bums you out this morning, but we are all going to die. Unless Jesus comes back first. The only question is the timing. So the fact that some of our friends are healed and some aren't, well, that's secondary. Because we know until Jesus comes back, whatever healing we receive is only temporary. And then secondly, let me tell you this as well. One of my favorite verses in scripture, I come back to it frequently, 2 Timothy 4, 7. And a lot of you are already going to know this. I'm actually going to start in verse 6. This is the last letter the Apostle Paul wrote. And he said, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. He was in prison waiting to die. And he said, the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now all that's left for me is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his. 
God's timing may not be our timing. Paul could have lived many years longer. He was an incredible missionary. No one, I think, from the first day of the church until today has had an impact like Paul. And yet, in the middle of his life, God said, you have run your race. You have kept the faith. Now come home. What does God do with our prayers? He loves them. They are fragrant. He answers them in his wisdom at the right time and in the right way. And then he always turns them to good. He always turns them to good. At the end, God deals with evil in its fullest expression through the prayers of his people. You and me. Man, that is so much bigger than anything I have ever prayed for in my life. And that's what God does with my prayers. That's what he does with yours.